politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast. This is Daniel Horowitz, your host of the podcast back in the house for Friday. And it is the end of the week and I am indignant. I am ticked off. I've had enough of this. Where are the patriots? Where's the backup? Where are the troops? You guys are patriots if you're listening to this show. Where's everyone else? And I'll tell you where they are, where I think they are. It's a very disturbing thought. Here we have a country, and I'm going to get to a lot of this news because there's a lot going on, but I do have a special guest want to talk about crime today. We have legal immigrants who escaped communism that opened businesses and are being arrested by police and being held without bail in Michigan. Marlena Pavlos Hackney arrested today, held without bail. While we have the worst violent criminals, repeat violent offenders, released without even posting bail, prison populations are down 40, 50% in a lot of places. Then we have illegal aliens rushing across the border, and then they catch previously deported drug traffickers and drug drivers, and they're released. Yet we have a Congress. What did they vote on it during a time of a border invasion? Two amnesty bills, and some Republicans voted along with it. We have special needs kids being kicked off planes for not wearing a mask. No matter what data and studies come out on this, it just doesn't matter. We are the criminals at a time of record crime. We have vaccination lines for, quote, colored people only. This is the terminology they're using in a lot of these states. We have 41,000 apprehensions at the border just this week from the latest data I got from my border agent because Border Patrol won't put this out publicly because they'll get in trouble, so I have to get it privately from people I know. Biden put a freeze on all information coming out from CBP. Yet where is everyone? Where is everyone? So we're going to talk about that and more today, as well as our guest Sean Kennedy giving us a breakdown of the latest crime numbers, the greatest crime spike in a generation, if not in all history in one year. Now, folks, you need to protect yourself from crime. In order to do that, you have to be proficient at drawing and shooting. One of the things a lot of you guys who went with me on constitutioncoach.com, uh, the trip to Front Sight, Nevada for the defense training, and you should sign up again at constitutioncoach.com, is that most of shooting is about muscle memory, sight alignment, sight picture, trigger control, stance. You could practice that all with eye target, dry firing. The problem now with everyone buying guns and ammo, ammo is a fortune and it's often hard to even get. I used to be um, kind of st- skeptical of laser target ammo, but then I realized this is the ticket. This is how you could practice and practice and practice with almost 100% proficiency 
and just spend less than a hundred bucks with our promo code and you have that laser bullet for life. And you could practice and practice thousands of rounds worth of muscle memory without spending the money. I target invented to give law-abiding citizens a cost-effective way to train and safety and the privacy of their own home. No more inconvenient trips to the range where you often have to wear a stupid mask, mask or expensive practice ammunition. Download iTarget's propriety app, load the laser bullet into your firearm, and start your training experience. And dry fire, it helps you develop the muscle memory, sharpen target reaction speed, sight alignment, trigger function. And for a couple dollars extra, it's worth doing it. The app is free. But um, for a couple dollars extra, you can get their, their pro app where you could do drawing and shooting. So they have a timer. And you draw and shoot, and it marks your hits, it tracks it, and your timing for each shot. And it really works out well for me. So, folks, today you can save 10% plus, get free shipping with offer code CR at checkout when you go to itargetpro.com. Okay? So that's the letter I, targetpro.com, itargetpro.com, offer code CR to get your laser target and laser bullet. And again, those of you who went with me, who plan to go with me to Nevada, this is key because if you don't practice afterwards, you're going to lose some of those skills. Um, and it's very expensive. It really is. I, I certainly can't afford it. Now, speaking of affording it, I was wondering why people are not reacting. You know, at this time, mid-March, of 2019, uh, sorry, 2009, when Obama took over and we had this degree of radicalism, nowhere near this degree, actually, the people started rebelling. You had the Tea Party. And I thought that if this would ever happen, we would have the Tea Party times 10. I always thought that at least if things would get so bad beyond our ability to even imagine it, at least at the very minimum, that would force people to feel the pain and they rebel. And I'm just not seeing it from everything going on. I'm not seeing it. And I suspect some of it is Deuteronomy 32.15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked God. You grew fat and grew thick. Too many people don't feel the pain. I don't think there's enough small business owners in this country. They feel it. But if you earn above, you know, above a certain amount from working for a large corporation, hey, you get to work from home, you get your paycheck, you didn't lose it. If anything, you don't have to commute anymore. If you learn, earn below that level but didn't lose your paycheck, you get endless government subsidies. Last night, I got some insight into probably what's going on in the country. I looked at my checking account because I was depositing something, and I saw a huge bump in it. And it turned out I had $7,000 deposited into it. Now, as you well know, because I'm not a sellout, I've spent 90% of my effort producing good quality information, really working as an activist in the background. I don't get paid for it. Organizing this Con Action Network is taking a lot of time. I spoke with some terrific people last night from Ohio, two of them, to create an Eastern and Western Ohio Liberty Strike Force team. So we'll hopefully get that off the ground in the coming weeks. 
So I'm not promoting myself and selling books and doing stuff like that all the time like these other guys are. So you know what? I actually earn below the cutoff for the handouts. 7000 free dollars on top of the other two rounds. It's probably like I'm probably up to 14000 and then God knows what I'm going to get back on the taxes this year. Probably take me up to 20000 worth of bennies. And I was thinking a lot of people would be very happy with that. Or even if they're unhappy with what's going on, it's enough to keep them at bay. This is where it is. Every time you see in the Bible where the Israelites would turn away from God, turn to idolatry, is when they were fat and happy. It was the cycle in, in the book of Judges when they'd get fat and happy, God would punish them, they'd feel the pain, they'd turn to God, they'd repent and rinse and repeat. But I'm wondering, when are we going to reach that point? You know, it's like when they went into, when they took Canaan after the Battle of Jericho, they got fat and happy and they took from the spoils when God commanded them not to take from the spoils of Jericho and they got defeated in the next battle. And they were devastated and they turned to God and they, had, and they won victories again. It will not get better until we turn back to God and we slay the idolatry. But as long as we have this political fentanyl, whether it's handouts, whether it's distractions, we're not going to do what needs to be done. And I think this is a big part of the problem. The demonic forces in our government and corporate structure have gotten very good at knowing where that line is and they pay people off. But my hope is that there are two issues that they have now lost control of. See, fiscal issues they could always control because as bad as it gets, they can just turn on the printing press and throw money at people. But illegal immigration and crime, there is no backstop to their policies. See, those policies that they created, they can't rescind them. We are going down, 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 down on both of them. So I want to talk about crime but first, just, just to update you, so I got the latest border numbers for last week, and it actually wasn't seven days, it was like six and a half days, 41,000 apprehensions. Do you understand, in one week, if you would actualize that annual, uh, extrapolate that annually, that's a flow of 2.3 million. And those are the ones that we apprehend. There's at least another 30, 40% we don't apprehend. And those are really bad dudes. In other words, they reported in the same week about 9,000 gotaways, 41,000 apprehensions, 9,000 gotaways. But as I told you, there's a whole scandal going on in the RGV sector, which is the busiest, that they're not really even counting them. They're making them up. That's what I am told. So there's a lot more than that going on. But here we are. One injustice after another. We have a war on the citizenry. We have a particular and specific war on whites that is unrelenting. You know, there's a story nobody wants to talk about. But you know what? I'll talk about it. Out of Rochester, New York. Basically, <clears throat> there were these two teenagers, black teenagers, and they, the media wouldn't report it. They burnt a homeless man alive who happened to be white. 
One of them was 14 years old, and this is what's happening. They're getting younger and younger and younger. That 14-year-old had at least three robbery-related charges in the last couple of months. September, uh, uh, September of last year, he was arrested for knife-point robbery. His mother was charged also. He was arraigned. He was released. And he was a no-show for three subsequent court appearances. December, he's arrested again for armed robbery. Issued an appearance ticket. January 2021, he was arrested in a stolen car. Issued an appearance ticket. A warrant for his arrest was requested in January by juvenile prosecutors, but it was denied by a judge. On March 5th, a juvenile delinquent warrant was issued for his arrest. When a juvenile is charged with a crime, so probation must be called and they will determine if an appearance ticket is issued or if the juvenile needs to appear before a judge that day. Most of the time, an appearance ticket is issued with no court date. Probation decides whether to prosecute or or divert. If the decision is made to prosecute, the juvenile will be provided a court date by the probation department. Juvenile prosecutors do not even receive the paperwork until or unless probation decides the case should be prosecuted. And now those probation systems are are just saturated with these um, jailbreak people. This is what's happening. This is mainly a crime issue. But I do want to say, what would have happened if two white teens burnt a black homeless man alive? What do you think would be going on in this country? Yeah. There's a lot of that going on. And it's being encouraged by our government. Again, we have, um, where is this? We have in in, uh, Lucas County, Ohio. This is Toledo, Ohio. Moving forward, 20% of all vaccine allotment in Lucas County will be earmarked for people of color. Those vaccines will be made available at locations more easily accessible to undeserved populations at pop-up sites within communities. So now we're back to the colored people stuff. I thought we were done with colored people and separate water, you know, water fountains, but evidently that's what we're doing now. COVID can be used as an excuse to do anything to us, including bring back, bringing back segregation, overt racism. They're actually saying now, they're complaining that not enough blacks have been vaccinated. Now, first off, a lot of it is because they don't want to, and for good reason. But aside from that, I'm, I'm just, by the way, I'm just going off of their own mindset. In their mindset, the vaccine is the savior of life. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying that's their mindset. So they believe that whites are less deserving of being saved than blacks. That is openly what they're saying. Because they're, they're complaining that more too many vaccines went to white people. Now, the reason is because we vaccinated seniors first. And, you know, the way just the demographics in the country are... Um, you know, you have a certain average percentage of certain types in each area. If you if you skew it towards seniors, it will always be more white. If you go younger, it will be more, you know, black and other other uh, ethnicities, races, whatever. So they are basically suggesting that we should prioritize younger blacks over senior whites rather than just 
doing it based on age regardless of color rather than color regardless of age. There's a term for that. And there's been people, you know, on the dark side of the web that I think we certainly don't want to empower those voices that are, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum of the BLM, Farrakhan, black supremacists. You have legitimate white supremacists, although I will openly say they are much less numerous in numbers than the other side. And they have no political power, unlike BLM, which is basically the Constitution now. But some have been warning about this. And um, let's just say the discrimination against whites is getting to a point where it's not just property and wealth, it's, it's, it's life itself. And again, I mean, when you do stupid policies, you kill everyone. Ultimately, you know, this, this homeless person was white. The, the bulk of homicide victims are black. You know, we had uh, Nick Gerace, the retired Philly cop on, said in Philadelphia, 86% of all homicide victims are black, even though they're only 44% of the population. But the, the, the overarching point I'm making before I just get to get to my guest is you put everything together and we have a government that is demonic and evil. It's not liberal. It's not socialist. It's not violating the Constitution. I mean, they are. It's much worse than that. It's sadistic. It's demonic. And they are literally using the government to attack its citizenry. The government is of, by, and for foreign invaders and criminals. What do you do with a government like that? And yet, I can't even get a critical mass of elected Republican legislators to even just fight back using the legislative process. Again, I will be clear and I will defend it till my dying breath. That we are way beyond the line where our founders mandated that we forcibly overthrow the government. But what I'm just saying is to at least use the legitimate institution of the democratically elected legislatures to fight back. And they don't. So in Michigan, you have this woman, Polish immigrant, fled communism, being arrested, held without bail. And everyone's like, yeah, that's Whitmer. Whitmer, the the Democrat governor. Okay, but there's a Republican legislature. Why aren't they passing a concurrent resolution declaring all these acts null and void, declaring them violation of natural law and the Constitution, and calling upon all the county governments to resist? At least that much. To my knowledge, I don't think they've passed anything. And it's like, Oh, what can we do? We don't have the governorship. So what? She doesn't have the legislature. But this is the problem. It's like, I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know what it's going to take to fight back. Now, folks, there is one issue, as I mentioned before, that I think might finally get some people to wake up. But that still might take a little bit of time. And that's crime. You know, it's truly remarkable thinking back to how quickly these years have gone by when I was pretty much the lone voice in the conservative movement who had a prominent byline 
um, who is known in conservative figure circles as a conservative figure who actually fought for Reagan's view on crime. I know that sounds very novel, but at a time when everyone bought into the Soros agenda, and I mean on the deep right, supposed right, the corporate right, to release criminals that we have an over-incarceration problem. Somehow we are just too tough on criminals and we're just grabbing them off the street, locking them up forever, no good reason. And we're just doing the bidding of victims of crime too much in this country. Well, I warned that actually the pendulum had already swung back. This was in 2015, 2016. And we were releasing criminals and there were already signs of crime going up. But the way the data was reported, we didn't really have such good proof of that. We knew it in our heart. We felt it on the streets. It wasn't borne out most of the years recently in the numbers. Well, my next guest warned about this in a column a couple weeks ago, and now the New York Times this week actually reported on it that based on preliminary data from the FBI, they don't come out with their uniform crime statistics till later in the year for the previous year, but in 2020... It turns out there was a 25% increase in homicide just for one year, and that would take us likely to over 20,000 homicides for the first time since 1995. So not just, you know, we're bending the trajectory a little bit, we're going back up, wiping away the entire baseline of a generation-long gain against crime, probably the best social trend we've actualized in our lifetime. This is a big deal, and it's shocking how it's not really talked about much. I know when I was coming of age in the early 90s, this was a big deal. Now that it's coming back, not so much. But with us today to delve into some of these numbers and just some of the broad trends on why crime is going on, why it's going up, what's causing it, what we can do about it, is my friend Sean Kennedy. He's a fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute, expert on crime, anything going on, pushing back against jailbreak. He is somehow involved in it. He's written a terrific column at the American Conservative. You could look it up. It's titled, The Urban Poor Are Paying a Steep Murder Tax Since 2020. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Daniel. All right, Sean. Well, obviously, you get the two of us uh, on air together to talk about the broad issue of crime and jailbreak, and I don't even know where to start, but we're going to start with this New York Times article. Um, So first, if you could just take us a little bit into the data, because you actually pointed this out before they publicized this, that you felt we hit 20,000 murders. Um, Is it really that bad on the ground? It's terrible. The the sense of... uh scale, I think, needs to be really elucidated. They uh, just reported uh, on Monday of the 15th, uh, a week after my estimate, that there was a 25% increase in homicides. That is over 4,000 homicides and will roughly work out to 20,000 and a half homicides uh, uh, in this year. Now, for scale of what that looks like is that murder rate is 6.2 per 100,000. We haven't had anything like that since the 90s, and raw numbers since 1995 have had that many murders. But this is the most shocking thing. We had a crime spike in 2014-2016. We worked, obviously, we talked about this, Daniel, uh, for years, where we saw over the two-year period 
a 21% increase, 11% in one year and 10% in the next year. In a single year, we had a 24 to 25% increase in homicides in the United States. That That is 4,000 additional bodies than we would expect in a normal year. And the U.S. homicide rate is extremely elevated relative to the rest of the United States. I mean, New York City's homicide rate was roughly 20 out of 100,000 in the worst years in the 90s. It was now three before de Blasio really took power uh, out of 100,000. And the U.S.-wide was roughly five for the last decade or so. It is now 6.2 and with over 20,000 homicides with a quarter increase in a single year, which I'm looking at the FBI data all the way back to 1960 where the UCR was uniformed in its data, there's not a single year that even comes close. Even in the bad years in 1979 to 1980, we didn't see such an increase, or in the late 60s, we didn't see such an increase. It's just mind-boggling as to how many people died in excess of normal years. Wow, and and it's important to reference 79-80. That was right before Reagan came to power. That was one of his top three issues, and it was very clear to everyone where it was coming from, why it was happening. You know, you had these liberal judges. They barely locked people up, and he ran on that, and that became the foundation of conservatism in many ways. Yet here we have the largest single-year increase in homicides, and it's pretty muted um, and that's what I wanted to get into the cause. So obviously, um, on our side, they'll kind of recognize it, but I think a little bit off topic, they'll say it's to defund the police, abolish the police when it's really just a broader jailbreak, lack of deterrent, lack of punishment mindset. And then on the left, so this New York times article, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I'm shocked that they publicized that crime is, uh, so high because typically they're denying it. And then I read further and they said, although it's not clear what has caused the spike in murder, some possibilities are the various stresses of the pandemic, the surge in gun sales during the crisis, and less belief in police legitimacy related to protests over police brutality. I'm not even sure what that means if you string those words together. Um, what's your take? I mean, the data does not follow what they're saying whatsoever. We know for a fact that there's very little relationship between gun sales and COVID saw an increase in homicides. But again, the COVID spike that, that I've written about in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere was about releasees coming out. It wasn't about COVID. Of all things, there were fewer people on the streets. We've actually seen robberies and property client crime decline because victims were not available. But criminals often kill other criminals or people in the drug trade or whatnot. And that's where we're seeing most of the spike is in urban areas and it's related to, to drugs or to other things like that. So the victims aren't robbery suspects shot at random or whatnot. And that's the part of the reason why we see the COVID decline. It is a product of depolicing, decriminalization effectively of crime and a general lawlessness that has been allowed to permeate post the uh, George Floyd riots where police were told to stand down in New York City, police were told to stand down in Portland, and in both those cities we saw huge spikes in crime. And this trend has actually been shown before. Uh, we saw this in both Chicago and Baltimore on isolated levels where we saw significant declines in the amount of arrests, 
that were tracked versus the number of uh, the number of murders. We saw an inverse relationship where we'd see arrests fall by about 50%, like we did in New York City this year, and murders increased by 50%, which is what we saw in New York City this year. And the same phenomenon happened in Baltimore and Chicago, where we saw 59% increase in Chicago and a 55% increase in Baltimore in murder, while arrests were falling by half to a third. In Chicago, the most important type of arrests or stops were halted by an ACLU consent decree in 2015, and the following year was the year that uh, Baltimore hit nearly 800, uh, Baltimore, Chicago nearly hit 800 murders, and they're right back there this year. So obviously, again, you know, it's unmistakable that May 25th was the benchmark, the Floyd rioting, uh, because as you noted, in fact, crime actually did drop from March to late May from the pandemic. It did, it, it did not increase, actually dropped. It was not until the rioting that it went up. So obviously, you know, the left is very off base on that. It's obvious why crime is, is rising. But on my side, most of my colleagues in this business, they'll talk about the defund the police movement as really the culprit for what's going on. But correct me if I'm wrong. The way I look at this, I just saw this morning and I put in my column as well as citing some of your data on, on Portland, but I, I uh, cited some data out of New York City. So obviously murder was up 47% last year. Shootings were up 100%. And I looked at their the census of average daily jail residents, you know, and this wasn't the city, it was statewide, but New York City is kind of the big enchilada there. And it went from an average census in jail of 26,000 a day in 2016 to about 12,000 in 2020. So isn't it more a fact that basically between the the pre-trial release post-conviction early release, jail breaks, prison breaks, reduction in prison population, that going into uh, George Floyd, you had thousands upon thousands of more criminals on the streets that typically over the last 25 years would have been locked up, and now they're not. Then when you had the Floyd rioting and the general sense of lawlessness that permeated these cities and then the deterrent against the police and enforcing the law instead of the criminals, those fuses that already were dropped based on prior ride-to-riding policies were lit. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect storm from decriminalization of crime from the Soros prosecutors and state legislatures uh, basically non-prosecuting the case of prosecutors and by fiat to determining what the law is which is what we see in Kim Fox's case in Chicago, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore, and now George Gascon in L.A. County. We see this over and over again. And then on top of that, state legislatures in California, through both ballot propositions by the people and by uh, court order through AB 109, which is a de-incarceration uh, move by the courts to say there was overcrowding, we saw huge crime spikes, uh, both in the short term and previously in California over the last decade, because of these policies. I mean, one of the examples that I find uh, sort of amusing is Oklahoma bought in on the right on crime thing and they lowered the penalties and basically issued an edict saying petty theft is no longer a crime and the convenience stores are getting robbed blind. 
and they're the biggest lobby out there to increase the threat of the theft threshold because the police aren't doing anything about it because it's not worth their time. It's a ticket and they release them on the site. So this is a problem. And as we know from broken windows theory and just, you know, practical experience, mm. when people are told that there are no consequences and that your neighborhood is going to degrade into lawlessness, lawlessness erupts. We see people start behaving in ways uh, that there are no consequences and then it accelerates and escalates further and further. And this is what happened in COVID where people moved into violence because the police stopped making stops because they've been before even the George Floyd incident, the stops were down. And then people saw after George Floyd that the police weren't going to do anything. And once the police aren't doing anything, crime, you know, can fester and, and the criminals step up. You know, that's a very important point you made about Oklahoma. Again, I, I, I yell until I'm blue in the face, and this is part of my Liberty Strike Force team is for people to push in red le state legislatures um, to push on crime. People think it's a New York-San Francisco problem. But, you know, as you mentioned, Oklahoma passed this um, – this ballot initiative, which was really teed up by the legislature that bought into this garbage. And it was very misleading because they they basically uh, phrased the language of the initiative on the ballot by saying, look, you know, do we need to lock up? It was a state question 780 in 2016. Do we need to lock up people for so long for just uh, theft and drug crimes? And people are thinking, yeah, well, you know, why should we do that? And they all said Oklahoma had the you know highest incarceration rate around. But isn't it true that what typically happens, so there's two things. Number one, even if it's nothing but the drugs and the theft, that's a big deal because then there's one thing not locking up everyone forever for those things, but there's another thing basically permitting it. So then you have the broken windows problem where you have just the homelessness and the needles and the all the stuff we're having in San Francisco, but you're having it in Tulsa now too. And then also... You know, a lot of these guys who aren't just doing theft, but they're doing murder, they were previously locked up because they had rap sheets. So I want to get your comment on this guy, if you've seen him. Um, his name was was uh, Anderson, was his last name. I'm forgetting the first. Lawrence Paul Anderson. And basically, this guy is accused of cutting out the heart of a woman, cooking it, and then killing three more people in his uncle's home um, or two more people and then injuring one other. So total three murders and people are shocked by it. Well, it turns out he was one of the guys released under Kevin Stitt's largest jailbreak in American history. It was over 400 people released um, in November 2019. And it turns out, yes, he was on probation for a 20-year sentence that he only served two years for for drugs. I'll think like, well, drugs, come on, Daniel, 20 years, it's ridiculous. But you look at his record, and it was full of gun violence and holding people up by gun um, uh, gun uh, point, and obviously tons of drug charges and tons of um, robberies and, and uh, stolen vehicles and things like that. And also, he was being medicated for bipolar disorder. I mean, it's astounding as to what we're seeing uh, in this. There was a case uh, to speak not of just the uh, prison releases, which COVID uh, accelerated because of this uh, heartrending kind of ACLU series of lawsuits, but we just saw an incident in Houston 
where a guy who was previously arrested on uh, other charges, weapons charges, I believe, went out and was released on bond and killed a cop. And this is the shocking thing. They gave him $750,000 bail and $500,000 bail just on killing the cop. And he was, and he made bail. His own lawyer didn't know he made bail. This guy <laughs> is likely an indigent. How did he come up with $500,000? Well, either some left-wing jailbreak group paid for it or they just wind up letting them go without it. I mean, that's that's what I'm concerned about. And and by the way, you, you remind me of something else, and I know you sent me an article on this, and I saw you sent me a California case. I'm seeing two cases from New York with clerical errors resulting in murderers being released. What is it with this trend, and how is that possible? Well, the one of the ones in California was a killer, and what Gascon, who's the Soros DA there, did was he dropped all the charges because he wanted to remove the what are called enhancements, which are sentencing plus ups, effectively, on killing certain individuals or or the way the crime was committed with a gun or with whatever. And Soros keeps or Soros uh, Gascon keeps saying that uh, that these have no uh, public safety benefit and that the science shows this. Now, of course, he misreads or doesn't understand what the criminal uh, data actually says. It's talking about aging out of crime, not about reducing that. And also beyond the idea of reducing recidivism, there's a justice sense, especially in the case of murders. The idea that, yeah, you won't commit another murder if I release you at 65 doesn't do justice to the family just because we say, oh, you won't commit another crime. You, you, you took a life. Like, you don't get your own life back. There's a, there, there's a misunderstanding about this utilitarian notion yeah. behind some of these criminal justice reforms. Oh, this is more effective. Effective for what purpose? Justice isn't about necessarily effectiveness. Yeah. And, um, and then, and then but, let me just stop you there, Sean, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. But the same people who do the geriatric releases, that's what you're talking about. This is a trend throughout the country. It's not like they go, you know, pedal to the metal on the 18, 20 year olds. No, they're, they're not being deterred. And, and those that they keep cycling in and out, those absolutely commit more crimes, including murders. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. And here's the thing about it is people will point to things like recidivism rates and like keeping people locked up. Uh, you know, it doesn't, is it reflecting the data? Even if these instances are anecdotal, the fact that they recidivate and commit violent crimes, even if it's 10% or less of the total, that's 10% of crimes you could have prevented. They were needless deaths, yes. needless rapes, needless robberies. And it's the idea of saying, oh, well, we should release them because we feel bad for them. Very few people have died in prison from COVID. And those who deserve the vaccine or whatever, just like other elderly people could get it, Almost everyone who get who uh, who's been dying were older. They're not young people. The prison population isn't that old, and they were using COVID case counts, which I know you go into a great deal, uh, Daniel. But co getting COVID for a young, healthy twenty-five-year-old is not deadly. There's just very few deaths at that level. So releasing someone because COVID is ravaging the jail is is not fair to the people who are the victims of these individuals. No, I mean, that that was insane. And then, as I always talk about on the show, what we don't see and cannot quantify is the even larger pool of people that committed new crimes during COVID 
and weren't initially locked up who would have been locked up as a result of that. So it's not just the releases, but those that were allowed to cycle in and out. And there were these stories, you know, of people committing six carjackings or something, and they're just in and out, in and out, in and out. And there's just simply no deterrent. My que- so, so I want to talk about one, one technical and one philosophical question before we wrap it up here. Um, on the technical side, so I'm always about action items. I'm always about seeing, okay, what do we need to push in my with my activists and all these states and the state legislatures? Um, when it comes to immigration, I'm very much of the mindset that it is not a new law problem. It's it's an issue of just enforcing the existing laws, which the executive branches and the courts don't. Um, but it's a matter of it's the laws on the books. My question to you, is that the same thing with crime? Is it an issue of the dirtbag Soros judges and prosecutors, and if, if that's the line of attack we need to take and you, you clean them out, we'll be fine? Or do we need to tighten up some statutes? I think it's both. I mean, there are definitely statutory problems in terms of what uh, is a crime and what should be uh, prosecuted. One of the things that's, that's striking, and, and Daniel, you live in Maryland, we've dealt with is in Maryland, there is a five-year mandatory minimum for felon in possession of a firearm, which we know a felon possessing a firearm, carrying a firearm illegally, is a precursor to more violence. The people who get out of prison and immediately start carrying guns and then get run into the cops carrying a gun are not people that we want out there. They're not you know, out there to defend themselves. They're, doing, they're up to something. And in Maryland, there is a loophole that you could drive a truck through uh, that is called an ABA plea deal. And I've done some analysis on this and I can go into it in greater detail some other time, but it effectively allows the prosecutor and the defense attorney and the judge to collude and go around the mandatory minimum. If the prosecutor and the defense attorney agree to a deal that even though the statutory conviction is for the felon in possession, they get less time per whatever jurisdiction. And so we see very few prison intakes for a felon in possession that we see lots of arrests for it. And by the way, this is not uh, a difficult crime to prosecute because the police officer caught them with the weapon can testify. There's no witness question. And two, they were clearly in possession and are clearly a felon. Those, once those facts are laid out, there's no, there's no debating it. There's no question. It's like, you know, videotape of a murder. Oh, you're not the guy in the film. Like, what is the claim? So those kind of loopholes that exist in the law, in the case of Maryland, where there's a mandatory minimum on the books, but then there's this other provision that allows them to end run the mandatory minimum, allows for these kind of backroom shenanigans to occur in prosecutors' offices or with judges that give them too much leeway uh, to basically end run what, what the people want through statutory lines. But at the same time, you do need to go after the people because two things, state legislatures and these prosecutors are making things that even if we tighten up the thing, they'll find another loophole or they'll do something else mm-hmm. or in the case of state legislatures, create another you know, leniency rule that doesn't do that. And I want to bring this all back because we can talk tough on crime and all these things all day long. And this comes to the murder uh, tax op-ed that I wrote. Yep. The victims of crime want policing. They want strong sentences. Now, 
some of these people are obviously conflicted if they have relatives or whatever that have gone to jail, but they do not want violent criminals on the street. And, you know, we could talk about drug laws or all these other things, but so many of the violent offenders are getting off easy for whatever reason. And they are the victims of these people. The, the, the most violent neighborhoods are often the most supportive of police. This is a shocking statistic. In 2019, Gallup did a poll for a third-party organization of a series of inner-city neighborhoods, and one was the south side of Chicago. And the south side of Chicago, they asked them, do you want more, the same, or less policing? This is south side, the, you know, the epicenter of many of the murders in Chicago. 68% wanted more policing. Another <laughs> third wanted the same amount of policing and only 3% wanted less policing <laughs> in Chicago South side. Now we see similar numbers like that across when you average out these, you aggregate these numbers where we see 90% of African-Americans who live in the inner city want more night or the same and 94% of Hispanics want more or the same and get this a Monmouth poll done after George Floyd showed that 72 percent of blacks in America across the United States, all demographics found that they're satisfied with their local police. Whites were lower. Asians were much lower. Like African-Americans who are often the victims in these areas are not anti-policing. Now they may obviously feel like they're being harassed in certain contexts, but that doesn't mean they know there's a trade-off if they get rid of the police and defund the police. So we need to say to ourselves, the people who often speak the loudest and say they're speaking for a community often don't live in that community. Even if they come from that community, they're on a high horse. I mean, I, I have a particular uh, a bone to pick with uh, Gail King, who's Oprah's friend. She goes on CBS this morning every day nearly and does another racial injustice, police this, this. And she's on and on about Breonna Taylor. And she had Malcolm X's daughter on last week uh, spreading conspiracies about how the CIA killed him. But when she goes on and on about this, she doesn't talk about the victims of crime in these neighborhoods, and she has the luxury of hiding behind gates and guards that mean that she'll never see the, the consequences of her actions to promote these policies. Well, and I think it's not just Oprah's uh, significant other. It's, it's all, a lot of Republicans and certain famous uh, so-called conservatives talk like that too, and they never ever talk about victims of crime it's always the people incarcerated are the victims what could we do for them zero-sum game really really frustrating what when do you think this ends you know i again i came of age in the early 90s i remember this that the outcry largely i believe did come from the suburbs or around big cities People were fed up. A lot of the break-ins and burglaries were very big in the, you know, 1990, 1991. Um, do you see us reaching that tipping point, or is this still too concentrated in inner cities and, and all the Karens just don't care? I, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, we know for a fact that of the 4,000 excess murders this year, roughly 2,700 of them happened in big cities, and those are just the top 50 or so big cities. So – the people who are victims of this are often invisible. And obviously, as I said, the people who claim to speak for those people don't really care about those people or are at least speaking in their own terms, not for them. So we have a, we have a, 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 a information gap here and that people need to start becoming victims of crime. I mean, it, it, 
and fortunately, there was an incident in, I think it was the late 80s under D- Dinkins before Giuliani, and Giuliani made hay of it before, when he ran in one in 93, is there was a Japanese tourist mugged and I believe shot and killed in New York City. And it was in a tourist part of New York City, what we would consider, you know, main part of Manhattan downtown or, you know, off of Broadway. And the Japanese government put out a warning saying, mm. do not travel to New York City in the United States. It's too dangerous. Now, the thing why that's so shocking is, one, Japan is a very safe country and all these other stuff. And the left will cling on. They don't have guns. They don't have a lot of things, but they don't have guns. But when they embarrassed us, and at the same time, obviously, Japan was eating our lunch economically until they collapsed. But yeah. when they embarrassed us that the greatest city and the greatest country in the world is too dangerous for our great chief economic rival to let their people visit, that, I think, hit home in a psychological way for people in the suburbs who never would be victims of crime, but say, this crime is now a blight on our nation. And when that shame sort of overcomes people who even aren't proxy to crime, that may be when the pendulum swings back. We're starting to see this. I I would argue we don't know, obviously, the outcome, and we don't even know if they'll get on the ballot. But in California, they have a recall law. I'm from Los Angeles. And they are pushing to recall this prosecutor, George Gascon, who – what's funny is – I hate to to say this, but all the other Soros prosecutors, Kim Fox – uh, Rawlings in Boston, Gardner in St. Louis, until very recently in a few high-profile cases, Jesse Smollett and the the two uh, uh, the, the couple with guns outside yeah, the house, yeah. where they overstepped or made fools of themselves. They didn't do it on a mass level. Gascon comes in, and the first thing he does is start like ending the death penalty for cop killers and child killers and all these really offensive things. He didn't yeah. slow roll it. And so he got the, the people ginned up. And almost 201, the spokespeople for the anti-Gascon movement are Hispanic and African-American, and they're sick and tired of their family and their victims being victimized again by their killers either being released or getting a light sentence. And, you know, th- those are the best spokespeople for these policies. And we're seeing the Gascon recall take, take uh, steam and we may see a, a tide turn back where people are waking up that there are real life consequences to some of these policies. Um, unfortunately, uh, in many cases, people are just inured to it. The 2020 increase because of the great tumult and COVID and all these things may not still be visible to people. They're not even leaving their homes. They don't know. They don't realize yeah. it. But when 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 there was an incident in downtown uh, Baltimore, and uh, people don't maybe know the geography of Baltimore, but Baltimore as a city wraps around uh, the bay or the harbor, and at the 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 hook that wraps around it, the U is called the Inner Harbor, and the Inner Harbor is a posh shopping district with hotels and all these nice things next to Little Italy and everything like that. And if you were to just go there. And I could fly you in by helicopter. You'd be like, Baltimore's kind of a nice town. This is nice. There was a shootout in a posh hotel in Inner Harbor in the fall between two guys just literally wild, wild westing it in the middle of the Intercontinental Hotel. (laughs) Now, that shocks the conscience of the people who think, oh, West Baltimore, East Baltimore, Sandtown, those are hell holes. I'm not going to go there. I'll just drive around on the freeway. Well, you can't avoid it if it's happening in the Inner Harbor Hotel you're staying in. So that is going to – it's not that people have to be the victims of crime. They have to see it up close. 
and the, the, the freeway has to be stopped because of a drive-by shooting that happened between two cars or whatever, and you go, man, this is getting out of control. When that happens, the pendulum will start to swing back. Yeah, and, and I would argue it already has if we actually had a party that would run on it and make a big deal out of it, but, you know, of course, uh, that's that's going to be very slow. One more thing, if I had to pick the worst aspect of our system now and the most dangerous as a trend is the juvenile system. So I'm noticing more and more that the most heinous crimes are committed by juveniles. Almost all the carjackings across the nation, big, you know, if murder was the biggest story of the year, carjackings, I think would be number two. Um, obviously where I am in Baltimore, but it's, it's all over really, you know, Seattle and, and certainly Minneapolis had it. And it's almost all juveniles. And, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit. There was a shocking story. I opened up the show with out of Rochester, where these two juveniles uh, are accused of setting a homeless man on fire. Now, obviously, as an aside, we all know that if the races would have been reversed, we would have had riots over it. But, of course, now they cover up the races. We don't know if this was necessarily racially motivated in this case. There are other cases it definitely is, and this certainly is a growing problem that I don't shy away from pointing out. But I think the bigger story in this case is this was a 14-year-old kid. So they're getting younger and younger. 14-year-old kid. He had three outstanding robbery charges. But in each time, he went before the juvenile probation thing. And they they gave him a ticket to appear. And he never appeared time after time. And then he had more robbery charges on his probation and his violation of probation, and yet he, there was still never a bench warrant issued for his arrest, and then now he's accused of, of a heinous murder. I'm seeing this everywhere. What do we do about that? Because the problem is, what I'm seeing is where there's the most crime and the most potential for it to spiral out of control, there's the least appetite to do anything about it. Yeah, no, it's, 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 Juveniles have basically been the tip of the spear in terms of the laxness towards crime. And the message has gotten out. I mean, even before the, the tough on crime juvenile, you know, the boot camps and things like that came in in the mid-90s, in Los Angeles, one of the, the great tricks that the gangs would do is their shooters and their robbers would be juveniles. Because even if they were caught, there would be little consequences. Even in the case of a murder, and they were convicted of it, if you were 16 prior to them lowering the age of culpability and sending you adult prison, people were getting out at 21. Yep. And they knew you're doing four years, five years for a murder. Well, that's a deal. Uh, and, and, and they know that they're not going to be culpable. And that's effectively the message has gotten out amongst uh, people who maybe a predilection, have a predilection towards this stuff that they could do that. I mean, gang initiations often use juveniles for violence and other things. And they do that on purpose because they can't be caught. I mean, obviously we use a stupid example that is in the pop culture and it relates to something uh, proximate to you and I, Daniel, is in The Wire, all the drug handoffs and all control of the actual stashes, which are the things that would carry, uh, you know, criminal charges, were done by underage kids because they know that if they catch them with a pound of heroin, nothing's happening to yep. them. They're getting out the next day. 
And that's the thing with, with the violence. Now, some of the, the violence, though, I think the trend line it, it comports, but some of the violence around juveniles has to definitely do with the COVID lack of putting people back in schools, which, you know, connects to some of the other things you talk about, where these kids aren't being watched by their parents, by uh, law enforcement, by the teachers. Nobody knows where they are. They're doing whatever they're doing all day. And then they start getting into trouble and it starts to escalate. I mean, in Baltimore, carpeting back to the, to the 90s in New York, instead of the squeegee men, we have the squeegee kids where they shake down passing motorists who stopped at a light demanding money. And if you don't do it, they F up your car or attack you or whatever. And there was a proposed crackdown on them, cleaning them out the corners. And all hell broke loose politically in Baltimore. And so that basically you just avoid the corners where you think those kids are. And by the way, some of those corners are right in front of police stations. Yeah, no, I mean, and the cops can't do anything. They're like, oh, well, they, they look underage. I'm not going to do anything. And they know that even if they do mark them up, put them in cuffs, put them in the back of the car, take them down to the station, the second they're before a judge, they're free. And of all things, the cops might get reprimanded because they're mm. harassing juveniles for charges that shouldn't go anywhere, so they were wasting their time. So we have created a no-consequences system from the bottom on up and, and I'll talk about this one, one other way because it relates to Washington, D.C., and we're seeing similar legislation uh, throughout the country called second look. So we've heard the phrase second chance, mm. and that's the idea that you're going to give recidivist yeah. people who come out of prison a hundred chance chances, but they call it second chance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, yeah, because none of them ever are really facing full consequences after two. It's much more than that. And, but the second look one, goes to the same notion of uh, juvenile complicity. They're basically, they already imposed this second look legislation in Washington, D.C. for murders, including all violent crimes, all crimes, really, where the juvenile was sentenced to an adult sentence uh, that they would be released at their 25th birthday uh, if they receive a sentence over a certain amount or at at the point of 15 years, depending which is earlier or whatever. if they were under 18 when they committed the crime. The Washington Post did a whole expose on this. And in the five years, I think it was five, maybe it was 10 years, of this uh, law going into effect, they saw 107 murders by the individuals who had been released under it. 107. In the 90s, and in the 2000s, sorry, D.C. was only getting about 100 murders a year. So over five years, 20, 25% of the murders were by these recidivists. It's crazy. Now they want to extend this to the age of 25, making the age of 25 culpability, because back to this idea of science and Gascon, they're misreading brain science and are saying that you're not, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25. It's just a false understanding of the brain science. It, the, the brain science says that people develop at different levels, two different levels, but it's asymptotal, fully developed, not developed enough to be culpable. At 24 and 364 days, you are not suddenly a flip a switch and now you, hallelujah, everything changes. But that's exactly what the arbitrariness of this is, is that you don't get a full life sentence if you committed at 24 and 364, yes. but you get a full life sentence at, at, at 25 in one day, that's just crazy. And more importantly, 
it doesn't really get to the idea. This is a greater question about the idea of innocence versus reason versus culpability. And we have basically erased culpability. No one is responsible for their actions. And it doesn't just limit itself to crime. But nobody is, should be held accountable because it's some greater force's fault or my daddy or my mommy or whatever. Nobody ever made a decision to do that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I argue that's inhuman. And why that's inhuman is this. It denies people, and I'll use a Berkeley word, agency. It says that you are not the master of your own life. Yes. And I don't mean that there aren't things that you can't control and you can't control, but you can control your own behavior in the case of crime or whatever and, and else. Then, and, 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 and then, Sean, yeah, Sean, but there's more than that. If you can control it, all the more so you need to be locked up. Meaning, like, this is what I never understood. And we, we talked about that a little bit with this Oklahoma guy. We have the mental illness problems, too, the criminally insane. A lot of them are homeless and they're committing heinous crimes and it's like well i don't want to lock him up he's mentally ill well then then have a separate you know mental institution for that that's maybe separate from the general incarcerated population but what he cannot be is on the streets because oh yeah he can't help it he just punches people well then all the more so he's got to be taken off i mean you know what i mean like we, we we talk about this a lot that sometimes it's not even the targeted passion um, you know, crimes or the murders based on, you know, money or, um, you know, uh, relationships, someone has a spouse and they cheat on them or something. It's not even that that I'm worried about in terms of public safety broadly. It's these guys that are just out of control. You're, you're, you're either your crazy, violent 16-year-old youth on the street just punching people and attacking people or or the criminally insane that do the same thing and they'll burn people and whatever they got to be taken off the streets whatever your method for that is um they certainly can't be on the streets more so than someone who is more in control of themselves and more targeted in the crime they commit it's it's uh it's mind-boggling that we we live in this in this world where we're up is down and down is up and it's it's frustrating because there's real victims of of this uh attitude and this 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 take on criminal justice and uh you know people like that individual in rochester that that fellow who was you know we would argue the most vulnerable in society uh deserve extra protection and you know that that would be a great example for uh you know enhancements or whatnot but because they're juveniles, they won't see any time anywhere uh, to speak of. They'll likely get some counseling or uh, maybe they'll, they'll see a few, a few months in, in juvie. But after that, they're fine to go out. And then they'll seal their records and we'll have no idea that they committed this heinous murder in, in 10 years' time. And then when they get wrapped up again, somebody will have to go dig around to find out what it is because it won't be on their rap sheet and so forth and so on. Holy smokes, that's a whole nother dynamic because you're right. Um, when they when they be get out, yeah, they'll they'll be 19, 20, 21 often, still at the peak, peak of, of the criminal career, and you're starting from zero again. So, you know, you have to build up for, before we even incarcerate you at all. Man, this is nuts. Boy, Sean, this has been very enlightening as always. Um, where could people find some of your work? You do a lot of writings on crime that I want people to see. Uh, you can find uh, my writings on mdpolicy.org. That's mdpolicy.org. 
or uh, you could you could you could just Google me, Sean Kennedy, uh, Maryland Public Policy Institute, and find some of my articles in the Wall Street Journal or elsewhere. And again, my last piece was uh, the urban poor are paying a murder tax in 2020 based on the, the early crime data that we have. And now we have the full FBI data, 25 percent more murders than we saw in 2019 and 2019 was already an elevated year so unbelievable how many republicans even running on this well folks that was sean kennedy we are way out of time send me your comments questions concerns to dharowitz at blazemedia.com make sure to sign up for conaction.network till next week same time same place god bless y'all stay empowered stay knowledgeable and stay safe